This is the Data Center Frontier Show, where we tell the story of the data center industry and its future. Our show is hosted by Rich Miller, the editor of Data Center Frontier. And now here's Rich with our show. Welcome everyone to the DCF show. And I'm thrilled today to have Bill Clayman as my guest. Uh, Bill is, uh, has a day job as the executive VP at Switch Data Centers, but he's also been playing a prominent role in the industry as a contributor for both AFCOM and Infrastructure Masons, two of the organizations that are doing a lot of fine working in helping chart the future of the data center industry. So Bill, welcome to the DCF show. Rich Miller, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to be here with you today and everybody listening. Bill and I have uh, been working together for uh, a while, uh, first at Data Center Knowledge and also at Data Center Frontier. I've always been so impressed with the enthusiasm that you bring for, for new technology and helping people understand the way that the industry is changing. There's a lot of information about that in the State of the Data Center report that you put together for AFCOM. I thought a good starting point today would be first some background on AFCOM and, and who is involved in, in that and about the state of the data center report and uh, what kind of things it tells us. Sure. Uh, so I've had a chance to work with AFCOM for, for quite a few years as a contributing editor. And for those that don't know, it stands for the Association uh, for Computers Operations Management. And it's an organization that's truly grown and evolved and has become a data center and IT infrastructure professionals haven um, and where we deliver comprehensive and vendor neutral education, uh, as well as something that's really important, peer-to-peer -peer networking to its members really across the entire world. And I can't wait to do this in person a little bit more often. Um, and what AFCOM has been doing, especially over the last few years, is creating a study because they've got they've got many, many, many members across the entire board. And now that they're a part of uh, Informa, they've got a bigger audience they can capture. The AFCOM State of the Data Center report uh, started five years ago, and I've been actually very fortunate in writing all five. We start off by asking some really core questions about the industry. What's happening? The diversity, inclusion questions, cloud computing, density, edge, robots, AI, everything in between, not just hey, tell me about airflow cooling or tell me about power systems, which are important. Nobody yell at us. Those are really important systems to, to talk about. But there's other really important metrics as well. This report, if anything, Rich and everybody listening, has given us a really interesting snapshot into what we're thinking, what we're doing, some of the niches that, that we're taking on, and really some of the challenges that we as an entire industry are, are sometimes facing. So it, it's been a pleasure and honor to write that report, get up on stage or sometimes virtually and present it as well, and really just just learn with everybody. One of the interesting dimensions of the, the report is that the members of AFCOM have all different kinds of infrastructure. It's not just a, like a cloud first population. Uh, there's many folks who are using uh, third-party data centers and lots who still have on-premises data center facilities. And I guess one of the things I'm, I'm interested in is what the survey is, is telling us about how people are balancing and, and using the different types of IT infrastructure available to them. What, what are the trends you're seeing? Holy cow, Rich. I mean, you, you're, you're going to start off with, with like the big question that I thought you were going to save like for, for, for the very end, which is, which is great. Um, in, in 2019, the last time I was able to do this in, per, in, in person, uh, it was in San Antonio. I, I stood up on stage and um, I, was, I was done with my keynote. I was ready to get off and have some water. And Brian Galuli, who was, who was the director of, of AFCOM and the event at the time, he came up to me. He's like, Bill, we have to ask you one question that's been upvoted continuously 
because uh, people could get on their seats in like a vote a question or two. He asked me, Bill, is cloud going to kill the data center? I got so energized by that question. I was about to flip that podium. I, I wasn't, but I got really excited about that question because I wanted to get up there and want to make sure people understand that cloud is not here to kill the data center. And over the past couple of years, we asked some more pointed questions about that specifically, right? Where's cloud? Where's the data center? How are they playing together? And we learned some things and I'm really excited to share this with you. My goodness, for the first time, at least in my opinion, over these last year, year or two, I feel that our industry is finding a really wonderful balance between what needs to live in the cloud, services, applications, DevOps, containers, the automation orchestration of containerized solutions, really advanced and agile services that need to be delivered um, really at scale or sometimes in bursts versus the physical infrastructure, what needs to live on premise um, and what needs to remain there. We're seeing that balance happen. Last year, 72% of the respondents, the AFCOM report stated they're seeing cloud repatriation, computing coming back to the data center. This year, that was 58%. Now less, but still the majority. Now in speaking with them, we see that they're understanding that yes, there are really cool, amazing upfront CapEx costs um, that you can save on by moving the cloud, but it's not really for everybody, nor is it for every single workload. And so what we've seen is this new technology and operational discipline that was born called FinOps. It's an entire role and profession that's sole job is to understand, measure, and mitigate the cost and the value delivered from cloud computing so people understand what needs to live on-prem and what needs to you know, be, be um, potentially in the cloud. Fascinating stuff there. The other big thing that we're seeing, and this is really across the report as far as density in the data center and growth, the hyperscale shift. This is really fascinating. Realistically speaking, this is a chance for us to actually remove these older legacy, less efficient data centers out there and put them into these hyperscale, better managed co-location facilities, or even in some cases, cloud computing as well. And this shift is happening. And I think it's wonderful, Rich, and everybody listening that your business needs to focus on what you need to be good at. And oftentimes putting your infrastructure in a different place that's way more efficient is, is, is a great move to go. And, and often this uh, type of transformation when somebody moves uh, workloads from the on-premises data center to a cloud data center, it's one of the uh, best ways to uh, have a greener organization almost overnight because the, the clouds, are, in addition to being super efficient, cloud data centers nowadays are mostly uh, powered or supported by renewable energy, uh, which is increasingly an important checkbox for folks to tick uh, because of corporate ESG requirements mm -hmm. and also one that is not always simple to accomplish uh, on premises. So you gave us a lot to unpack there. One of the things I wanted to dig into a little bit was the whole issue of repatriation because that's mm -hmm. a little bit of a hot potato right now. Uh, there was a column written a, a, a couple of weeks ago by uh, some of the folks at Andreessen Horowitz, the Silicon Valley venture capital firm where they were essentially saying that many companies could uh, be more valuable, both in terms of their uh, profitability and their stock market valuation, if they took more uh, workloads out of the cloud and uh, repatriated them in, in some fashion, uh, which is why some of the, the data that you shared about the repatriation rates that, that you're seeing from the AFCOM folks it's a hard thing to gauge year to year, but it actually went down a little bit, but there's a lot of chatter and a lot of uh, discussion that, that maybe this should be going up. But I think to sort of back up to the uh, initial point, 
moving these kind of workloads around is complicated. And it seems if folks have pushed something to the cloud uh, and are using it there, they're probably uh, trying to take advantage of the cloud architectures and uh, more of a virtualized approach to things. Is that something that easily comes back on premises or is most of this repatriation going to happen in third-party sort of service provider specialist data centers? I want to talk about that a little bit because where my report focuses on the trends and the statistics of people doing cloud repatriation, and my personal opinion is I think it's less because we had a whole bunch of projects happen over the course of 2019, 2020, and ended today. That's why that number is less. Some of these new reports are actually starting to put dollar figures behind what it means to actually capture these workloads and put them back on premise. Citing that report, right, to dimensionalize the cost of cloud and understand the magnitude of potential savings from optimization, there's a really interesting use case of a large-scale cloud repatriation, Dropbox, right? And, and that's what they talked about specifically, right, where this organization saved $75 million over the course of two years by shifting the majority of their workloads from public cloud to lower cost custom-built infrastructure that's in co-located facilities directly leased and operated by Dropbox. And their margin went from 33% to 67% from 2015 to 2017. Now, these are these are real numbers. Now, let's back up to your original point, Bill. Sure. These are complicated systems, man. Can, can anybody do this? You're talking about Dropbox. What about an organization that's not that size? Digital modernization is, is another word. Sorry if it's a buzzword, and I'm sorry if you're sick of it, but, but it is real. And it's a multi-trillion dollar industry where part of the reason why you're seeing DevOps and the world of DevOps explode with new functions, functionality, use cases, services, and so on, because people are saying, how do I become more agile? Uh, how do I move these systems and become much more effective and be able to support a connected economy? Uh, heck, Rich, I was a part of a project before Switch um, where we moved an AS400 system, an AS400 flat file ecosystem into GCP. And it was extraordinary and it was amazing and it worked and, and it brought great benefits to this global uh, retailer. These are possible conversations to have right now where legacy infrastructure, workloads, and physical infrastructure are coming to a point of inflection. What do I do with this now? How do I survive the next few years? Because if you work with legacy technologies because they still work, but they bring you no value, you're going to see your business potentially suffer from that. Today, workloads are much more agile, I would say, when you understand dependencies, how they're mapped, what they're working with, how can you make them much more agile between different data centers and cloud providers? That's a part of that modernization effort. I really feel many in this industry and all the folks that are listening are asking those kinds of reflective questions. What do I do with my apps? What do I do with my services? Yeah. Where should this stuff live? And, and a big part of that is the cost differentials that you talked about before. But that's becoming an increasingly complex picture. Mm -hmm. uh, I was intrigued by the discussion of FinOps as a financial operations, as a, as a specialty. This is something we started seeing a few years back, particularly focused on Amazon Web Services, because AWS has developed so many services and so many different ways to use it. And it's all very complicated. And everybody's heard the horror stories of somebody who didn't realize they were misconfiguring something or, or left something running when they thought they had turned it off. And suddenly a huge bill shows up in, in, their, uh, uh, in their invoice. So th that was sort of the, the first place that we saw it because uh, it, in a way it's kind of low hanging fruit because there's savings that can generate, uh, that can cost justify the effort that you put into it. It's pretty clear that uh, investing in that kind of expertise is, is valuable. 
And this gets just to one of my uh, one of the things I have a difficult time getting my head around with repatriation is that I don't know how many people there are uh, that have that expertise. Uh, and I think it's certainly less than the number required to meet the kind of savings that people might en envision out of this. Uh, it's kind of a new specialty, but it's not a simple one either. What are you seeing, hearing about how this specialization develops and, uh, and how companies are going to use it? There's no doubt that there is tremendous savings seen from the switch to upfront CapEx investments in information technology to subscription, right? There, there is, right? And it's really, you can't argue that, especially when the use case is right. But unfortunately, it, it, that feeling gets soured as the rising monthly bills come in for services that sometimes, like you mentioned, nobody knows that are even turned on. I'm going to quote J.R. Uh, Stormont, who is the, um, the executive director at the FinOps Foundation, quote, uh, the dirty little secret of cloud spend is that the build never really goes down. That's that's a heck of a statement, right? Because realistically speaking, right, a lot of folks that are using cloud are only going to see that that cost continue to go up. Let's talk about expertise for a second. It, FinOps is is the process of actively and continuously measuring, monitoring, and mitigating the cost and understanding the value of what lives in the cloud versus what that value persistently could be if it was managed in an on-prem environment. Now, there's different use cases. If you are an organization that's just only persistently developing applications and services, CDN functions that are leveraging a, a, a NoSQL database that's distributed throughout multiple carriers throughout the United States, cool. You probably don't want to have that stuff on premise. Use that cloud, use the low latency models, and, and that's a perfect model for you. Let's say you are a storage or some kind of a caching mechanism, or maybe something else where you require more of that physical architecture, right. suddenly dedicated physical gear in the cloud. Oh my God, Rich. I don't want to even look at that bill. I don't, I don't, I don't want to see it. I don't care which cloud provider you're working with. That stuff goes up really, really quick. That's where you have to start making some of those introspective decisions, right? Does this make sense for me to keep it in the cloud versus what do I need to keep on-prem? The first step is just asking the questions. Oftentimes, we've always felt that cloud computing is set it and forget it, let it keep running. It's working for me. It's in the cloud. It sounds really cool. And I can say that to my customers, but really it's not bringing much value to the business. As, as an architect, as somebody who's worked as a cloud architect and someone comes to me and says, Bill, I've got workloads in Azure, GCP, AWS. I don't know if they should be there. You do cost comparisons. You do architectural development, deployment comparisons. You see what's required on-premise, what you can build out, what you can lease out versus what you have out there. And you can understand the balance between what needs to be in the cloud and what needs to be on-prem. That's the change that's been happening in our industry is that simply more people are doing that exercise. This kind of brings the discussion around to, uh, to talent and staffing and the kind of people who can do the, the challenging work that's needed to, to make the most out of your uh, infrastructure. This has been a big issue across the industry. I know AFCOM looks at it. I also know that, that this has been a huge priority for infrastructure masons, uh, which is doing some really important work in this area. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing with infrastructure masons and how they're approaching the staffing challenge. 
it's a it's a layered question, right? Because a, a part of what we're trying to do is not just get more young people into our industry, but also very much be a part of diversity and inclusion programs as well. Side note, right? I, I get a chance to work with Infrastructure Masons. I got the hat on. And uh, in that organization, it's, it's again, a, a wonderful philanthropic organization that works very closely. We, we, we hang our badges at the door and we just simply try and focus on creating a more sustainable, more inclusive um, uh, industry that can, that can support more people, more processes, and uh, just create a better and more sustainable wor- world with every single click that we make. I am on their advisory uh, council, and I'm also the chairperson for the Millennial and Gen Z uh, resource groups, which gives me a really interesting insight and purview into what is happening at that collegiate, even high school level. Um, I've had a chance to mentor uh, several programs now. I got a chance to mentor regularly at um, uh, at HBCU, so historically black colleges, universities, and talking to them. And, and there's brilliant people out there. I'm, I'm going to talk about some some challenges that we've got. This report, the AFCOM report we had 85% respondents were male, 2% improvement over last year, and 45, uh, I'm sorry, 80% were 45 years and older. So we, we, right. do, we do have a challenge in this, in this place, and we do need to get more young people in the industry. The results coming back from all of you, all of our peers, the, the AFCOM community, 73% said that there is some serious difficulty in, in, in recruiting these kinds of, uh, in, in recruiting personnel, there's no single factor that in, so across the board, we need more people in digital infrastructure and a clear majority, almost 80% are actively trying to recruit and entice young people into their organizations. Um, and they're offering new ways to actually get folks on board. It's, it's not easy. It's not uh, something that, you know, comes naturally. How, how do you get somebody who's a networking person or electrical engineer to come and work in digital infrastructure? It, it is a lot of education. It, allows, it is a lot of eye-opening. And it is a lot of speaking in front of students and schools and, 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 and boards and bodies to help them understand that everything that we do has a, a physical, is a footprint, right? I, I ask a simple question and I love this question. Um, I, heard it, I heard it asked and I just copied this. Did you know that a single Google search can power a single, a hundred watt light bulb for 11 seconds? One Google search, right? And you ask that in front of a group of students and they're like, well, I'm going to be careful next time I have, I have TikTok running in the background or if I'm like streaming Pandora or just Netflix nonstop because there's an impact behind it. And what we've done right now with schools and universities, if we've begun to include a lot of the major uh, players, the, 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 the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, all of my uh, peers in this industry as well, uh, all the folks that I get a chance to work with, they're now mentors with me. Now they're, they're educators. They get in front of these students. And what's remarkable is through these kinds of programs, through infrastructure masons, through AFCOMs, through some of these boards, we're getting these young people right from college, right from these engineering programs to work in digital infrastructure by helping design things like capstone courses, build us a data center to support 50 million people and this app. And they do, they go from scratch. It was so inspiring, Rich, and everybody listening to see these students who've never set foot inside of a data center build a data center. I'm talking like Visio diagrams. I'm talking like power, space, rack, server, cost, how the app is going to run, connectivity and telecommunications, everything. And they get a grade on it because they take the culmination of what they've learned and apply it to data centers. I, I think this work is is really important, uh, both because of the numbers that you mentioned. The, I mean, 
we've been aware of this for years. Uh, as you know, my, my wife, Colleen, works with me in the business. And for many years, we would go to data center conventions together. And during the, the conference breaks, you know, Colleen get get in and out of the bathroom because she was the only one in line. She was the only woman there. And I'm like, you know, in, in line for 10 minutes, I, which is not to make light of what is a very serious issue. And I think we're having better conversations but at the same time, one of the things that uh, I always hear as sort of an icebreaker, both in business conversations and particularly on podcasts is, how did you find the data center industry? <laughs> and the reason for that is nobody went to school for it. Nope. This is, you know, it's a 20 year old industry that uh, by and large, uh, people learned about from somebody they knew and the light bulb never really goes off in, in many ways until you walk through one and realize that this is the internet, the sort of physical nature of the internet. And uh, so trying to raise that awareness, we're really you know, starting from, from scratch in terms of trying to introduce uh, internet infrastructure to this next generation. Having said that, uh, and you mentioned, uh, obviously the, the college and high school courses are important. What are the things that, that uh, are important going forward as we try to both make the workforce more diverse uh, and to get um, to make it younger, because you know there's a lot of the, a lot of the, what is it they call the gray tsunami out there. Um, you know, I, I I feel like it's such a almost disparaging thing to say, like the graying out of the industry. You know, it, male, pale, and stale. I, I'm a millennial, okay, uh, and remarkably, I was just I was just categorized as get ready for this, a geriatric millennial, which I, I was like, I was about to flip out. I'm like, what? You're going to call me a geriatric? All right, fine, fine. Use your, use your words. Because I'm oxymoron. The, I don't know. A little bit, right? I'm on the tail end of being young. Thanks. What's interesting here is that our approach, at least initially as an industry, was maybe going to colleges, going to universities, going to job fairs and saying, hey, come learn about data centers. It was a good approach. It got us people. But what we learned is that the majority of us, me included, were adopted. We were adopted into the data center field. Right. I came from a place called EPAM. I worked on some of the most interesting and advanced DevOps, DevSec, TestOp, cloud migrations projects I could have ever imagined. And I've worked in the data center, right? I never thought in my life that I would be spending so much time in this area, in this field. But it's, it's a phenomenally interesting area because it literally is digital infrastructure, like you said, supporting the internet. So, so Rich, we, we have to change course, right? We couldn't just keep going to job fairs. We couldn't just, you know, keep waving the flag. Hey, we're really important. Come work for us. We started actually, and this is a part of what AFCOM is doing with the education committee. We started creating curriculum. We started creating entire or helping influence and create entire programs that literally were like, let's just say a BS in um, a bachelor of science in, uh, in digital infrastructure, data center engineering, right? Where that becomes a minor. So you got an electrical engineer, right? Or somebody who specializes HVAC right. or different kinds of systems and says, well, hang on a second. Now I want to take a minor in data center engineering because I can apply what I've learned into this really, really cool concept of the internet. And that's been very successful. We started off with Hampton University, uh, which is an HBCU. And we've already got, I believe, two or three or four even other universities involved. Off the bat, there's at least three or four students that went straight up and got a job in the data center field. In right. the data, not adopted, like just go on and work in a data center as a data center engineer. And I thought that was phenomenal. So, so there's success here. What we've been trying to do is go, I guess, lower down the totem pole where we influence the curriculum so people understand more deeply what data center technologies look like. 
Technical schools do this, Rich, to some extent. Mm. I, I got lucky. I, I graduated with a network engineering degree from DeVry, and we had hands-on work. We had real-world practitioners. We racked and stacked uh, servers all day, plugged in Cisco switches. We understood where they were, how they lived, you know, rack architecture, where UPS is supposed to be, and how airflow works. We understood that. A lot of times in other kinds of traditional schools, you don't get that type of in-depth learning until... I think now, and we're right. starting to shape and shift that conversation. And that's, I think, what's really exciting. I'm someone who uh, got into the, the data center industry through journalism. I started out as a sports writer uh, covering high school and college games. So it's been an interesting journey. But nowadays, you can actually see more data centers in public media. Like, for example, when you, you watch a sporting event, you'll see uh, commercials for, for different cloud services. Uh, the other day, I uh, was tuning into Marketplace on NPR, and the, the, the lead sponsor is uh, one of the uh, service providers in the data center space, which is, <laughs> awesome. let me tell you, that's, that's new to see that sort of visibility, I guess. And, and it, it starts to make people think about, yeah, there's companies that do this and, and keep, the, you know, keep those TikToks coming. Um, <laughs> One of the things, that, this is a favorite topic of ours, one of the, the topics that always comes up in, in the uh, staffing challenges is the use of automation in the data center, including robots. Oh boy, here we uh, go. You know, the background of this is, is you and I worked together on uh, a package of stories about robotics in the data center way back, probably- 2013. 2013. It, it, still, still a heavily referenced article I just saw one of your competitors actually <laughs> quote that article uh, very recently and talked about it. Sorry, go on. No, that uh, it's been uh, sort of a fascination for both of us going forward, possibly because, uh, you know, the data center is always a place where automation has been a priority, particularly with the, the hyperscale uh, players uh, have a lot of uh, innovation chops to bring to bear on things like this. The pandemic really has accelerated some of the conversations around uh, how data center operations can be automated, how things can be managed remotely, and has raised the discussion about what are the things where humans really need to be in the data center and doing things? Uh, what can we have automation, even robots to do? And you know, is there a role for the, the lights out uh, data center? Uh, what, did, uh, what, did, what have you learned in terms of the state of the data center uh, survey about how people are thinking about uh, the potential for automation and robots going forward? I remember that article really well uh, because I had a chance to uh, interview and still a really dear friend of mine, uh, uh, Scott Jackson, who is an engineer, robotics engineer still for FANUC. Um, and and they're, they're very curious also about, you know, the whole automation thing. Um, and I remember very specifically, Rich, on the article, you used an image. It was a Google data center, if I'm not mistaken, right? It was the data drives and it was a simple robotic arm that would just be taking, you know, uh, drives in and out. I think there's, there's a level of maturity when it comes to robotics in the data center. I really feel, and I hope people don't think that we're going to be having this iRobot sunny kind of thing going up and down your aisle, removing a rack or a server, opening a cage. We're not there yet. P please understand that that's not where we are. The applications of robotics have, have certainly grown because of the use cases that, that are understood around this, 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 this solution. L let me pause on that. Um, for the first time, we asked that question from the AFCOM members. Do you feel robotics and autonomous systems are going to be deployed in the data center over the next 12 to 26 months? I was a little bit surprised because that number was high. Almost 60%, it was 
So came back and said, yes, we believe robotics and autonomous systems are going to be used within our data center walls, which is fascinating to me because that's that's a majority, right? That's quite a few people that think they're going to have right. some kind of a robot in, inside their walls or outside. But here's the difference, right? We're really talking more about, let's say, security operations, drone technologies, concierge services, you know, drones or, or robots that might be facilitating the, um, you know, walking somebody through a data center floor, uh, doing security in a parking lot, doing multiple functions like, uh, you know, scanning license plates, doing temperature checks, doing facial recognition, um, whatever the case might be. And, and there's more application to what we can do with that. Or for example, if you're doing things like, you know, big data islands, for example, and you just have straight up cold storage and you just have a very much a, a standardized architecture, you could have a robot like what Google did, uh, be plugging and removing things in and out right. because it's very standardized. Now, but that's not where it ends. Um, and, and you and I have discussed this. There's new solutions out there. For example, there's a really cool liquid cooling solution, right? That's that's first of its kind, right? And I had a chance to review it and, and even even write a little report on it, but it was difficult to re, to, to analyze because no one else has been doing this before. Right. And it's really cool and interesting because you've got this self-contained unit that has a robotic arm that can on its own lift up a blade, move it, and put a new one in. And the operator is like, "Cool, you did it. I'm gonna go have a coffee now." That's a level of automation and robotics that I think potentially we might start to see uh, be incorporated into more standardized systems. Uh, again, it's not here to replace anybody. I really, right. really don't feel that that's the case. I don't. If anything, it's going to be complementing the data center network compute engineer to allow them to focus on more valuable work within the business. I I've spoken with C-level folks from my own organization as well as others and none of them believe that they're going to be there to replace people. There's not that human synergy that robots can replace. They can really only augment what we do. So I think we're going to see continued use cases around robotics and what we can do with these kinds of systems. But this fear of robots taking over the data center and there's not a single human, there's going to be people. Lights out data centers doesn't mean like human-less data centers potentially, maybe um, you know better functioning. It's funny. I, I remember writing that article and I remember all the the love mail that you and I got. And I remember one specific comment was, I, I can't believe you wrote this, give your writers a day off on the weekend. And I remember you responded by saying, Bill, if people are sending me these emails, it's a good article. <laughs> <laughs> people are noticing. Look, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I've always found in, in first at data center knowledge and, and certainly now at data center frontier is the forward-looking technology, the stuff that's breaking new ground and shaking things up, always gets a lot of attention and always prompts a lot of discussion. But as you mentioned, there's context is really important in, mm -hmm. in terms of how these things would be applied. Uh, hyperscale data centers have always looked to maximize the number of servers that each admin can manage and, and extend that. You know, We've done some reporting on, on the potential applications of how robotics like that, like for example, a system that can automatically uh, swap out servers inside tanks of, uh, in, in this case, immersion tanks. You know, one of the, the theses that, that someone advanced was, well, then you can stack tanks uh, vertically, uh, build vertically within the data center, uh, have the, the robots swap uh, uh, servers in and out. Obviously, one of the things we saw with some of uh, the early containerized experiments is you can let a certain amount of servers fail in place before you go in and you mm -hmm. know, use the, the energy to go in and uh, swap them out. So that's one possibility. But the other use case that I think 
is different from robots come in and replace all the people. And this, I think, is an example of, of how it sort of extends the capabilities of the data center is some of the, the, the use cases with edge computing. Mm -hmm. uh, many cases, these are going to be uh, smaller facilities. They're going to be distributed. Uh, there are going to be security challenges uh, connected with that. And a number of the, the uh, tests have looked at what it's like to operate those without people have to, to being sitting inside this, uh, this small data center module. I, I, got, I, got, I got to give you this really cool use case. I, I got a chance to work with Oracle on a really cool project. They're building this innovation lab. It's actually done. I'm sorry, it's done. This innovation lab is done here in Chicago. And they used the Boston Dynamics Spot. You know, that that, that kind of scary looking. But yes, it, 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 it frightens children and things like that, but it uh, does cool stuff. And they equipped it with various sensors, lasers to autonomously scan the worksite to ensure social distancing, safety, contactless, contact, contactless site deliveries, uh, and even communication and concierge services. You get this little, little spot that's running around the entire facility doing scanning of the entire site to make sure that things are being properly uh, done and delivered. You can see all of this stuff in the video and it's functioning and it works and it's such a cool process. So again, the capability to augment what we do I mean, maybe we'll have a, a Boston Dynamics spot running around edge facilities doing similar things because you can equip those little guys, little beings um, with different kinds of sensors, LIDAR, scanners to do a function that you might require it to do. Robotics, I think, is, is fascinating in the sense that we're finally understanding some of these use cases and some of the cool applications that we can have in, like you mentioned, the edge. You see so many different uh, technologies. Is there anything that we, obviously we've, we've talked about a lot of stuff as we always do. What's interesting or exciting to you as a, here we are in mid 2021, starting to recover from the pandemic. Uh, what's, what's, uh, what do you find uh, uh, interesting and then exciting as, uh, as we uh, move forward? The conversation around sustainability, and you mentioned something really important earlier, that little NPR a provider, we've been hearing about data centers and more importantly, sustainability and green technologies around data centers um, quite more in, in, in the mainstream media. We're talking about microgrids. That's a big one. We've been talking about energy consumption. We've been talking about energy delivery. We've been talking about the resiliency of the grid. We've been talking about multi-billion massive offshore wind farms to massive solar farms with battery capacity to solar farms that are floating in the middle of the lakes in Japan to you know data centers that are being built underwater. We are taking such an extraordinary approach to sustainability and creating a greener future that it's that it's it's absolutely super exciting. There was a recent study from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory that said if 80% of servers in these smaller data centers that were less efficient move into more efficient hyperscale cloud facilities, it will result in a 25% drop in energy use globally. That's huge. And I'm really excited to see new battery technologies. I'm really excited to see more solar technologies out there. And what I'm really, really stoked about is the fact that this conversation is mainstream, Rich, and everybody listening. I've also heard the conversation about microgrids, grid technologies and data centers on NPR and your major news streams. I've had friends in human resources come to me and say, Bill, there's data centers in Texas. What happened when the power went out? How can a microgrid help? I heard this story in NPR and I'm blown out of the water because I never thought I'd be having this conversation with my buddy from HR. And now he's curious about energy consumption and data centers and how it can all be more green. 
the future of what we're developing is, is going to have to be more sustainable because of how we consume energy at such a large mass. There's, there's no slowdown in data. So what I'm right. really, really excited about is the conversations that we're happening, happen, having around sustainability. Here's the kicker, Rich, and I'll, 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 I'll be quiet after this. The concept, the concept of ESG, right, environmental, social, and governance is more important than ever. And that E part, for the first time, arguably in our history, there's actual putting money where your mouth is. There's actually compensation metrics around it where executives are being compensated by how green they can make their organization because boards of directors are saying, you go green, you're going to be more profitable and you're going to improve your ESG score and more people are going to work for you and create a healthier environment. That's really never happened before. People would just say, we'll do more green, we'll do more solar, we'll do more hydro, we'll do more thermal. Now there's actually, all right, well, let's, let's actually do this. Let's make this happen. The next five to 10 years, are going to be exceedingly exciting because these large capital firms see yes. that there's an ROI and they see that there's a massive investment and um, and potential to make uh, money, but also potential to make this world a better place. And that time frame, the ROI is getting smaller and more people are adopting it. That's what I'm really excited about. It's an exciting time. And you mentioned the, uh, the capital piece of this. And I think that's a huge factor in prompting people to really act when they've just been been thinking about it and to accelerate their action because uh, we just wrote, uh, I'll, I'll drop a link in the show notes to a story we did on sustainable finance and how it's becoming a larger role in the data center sector. There's a number of providers that are doing green bonds things like that, because it can help them get a better interest rate. It can build a relationship with investors. But when you have some of the largest outfits on Wall Street saying, listen, ESG matters, it's going to be a litmus test we apply to how we invest our money. And uh, uh, you see more and more, uh, you know, personal investors, uh, you know, Main Street uh, telling Wall Street that they want more options to invest in things that are technologies that aren't going to destroy the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, ESG plays a much larger role that way. And I think it, it filters through the money in an important way. And let's face it, building data centers is a capital intensive business. Yes. And, uh, and as a result, that, that uh, I, I think that's going to play a really important role going forward. Well, listen, Bill, you and I could talk all day and we will have to, to revisit uh, some of these topics uh, the next time you've got uh, one of these reports or, uh, and I know soon enough, you'll be doing a live keynote at, at Data Center World uh, as we, we actually begin to, to get together and, and do conferences again. So I look forward to that, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really jazzed that you're able to, to make time to come and, and talk with us today and, and share some of your insights with uh, our, uh, our listeners here at Data Center Frontier Show. Thank you, Rich. Don't be shy for everybody listening. You can find me out there on the social medias. Quadstack is my Twitter handle. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm hoping when this thing plays, I'm going to have a whole bunch of new friends. And hey, one more note, shameless plug. If you're curious about how you can be a mentor or how you can give back to, to our community, you know, just check out imasons.org. Shoot me an email or just ask, hey, can I, can I donate to a scholarship fund? Can I do a mentor? Can I, can I teach a class? We need you. We need people to continue to impact the millennials and Gen Zs of this world so that we can funnel in more amazing talent into our industry. So thank you for having me, Rich. Oh, you're, you're so welcome. Amen to that. And uh, thank you. And thanks to all our listeners uh, for tuning in to the Data Center Frontier Show, where we tell the story of the data center industry, one podcast at a time. We'll talk to everybody soon.
Thanks for listening to the Data Center Frontier Show. You can find the show notes for this episode at datacenterfrontier.com slash podcast, including links to the resources Rich has mentioned. Be sure to subscribe to the Data Center Frontier Show at Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or where you find your podcasts. If you enjoyed this show, please tell your friends or share about it on your social channels. You can always find us on the web at datacenterfrontier.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time.